Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Jim Glassman joining us now, as he always does, ahead of payrolls. JP Morgan Chase, commercial banking head economist. Jim, great to catch up Good with you. Good morning. How are you? We've got to start with the trade story, haven't we, Jim? Yeah, the most interesting story, isn't it? How do you keep up every single morning? You know, you have to step back and ask. Uh, I think what we're watching is this is not the way to get people to the table. I think what we're learning, and maybe the administration didn't really know this, that China has a lot of uh, options also. And they've got a more, much more managed economy, so they can manage the disruptions from this. And by the way, they say they're not going to weaponize the currency, but when the currency goes down 8 or 9%, that lowers the cost of merchandise we buy from China by... 50 to 60 billion. But Jim, so you, you could fit into the story. It's hard to tell. Just to push back a bit, the move today doesn't seem completely controlled by China. Their currency I, is weakening a little bit faster than that they would like, clearly, because they're trying to uh, stem some of those declines. Uh, it's not every, clear. Everything yeah. about China is controlled. And that's why this is not a market currency. Uh, it is where it is because the People's Bank of China wants it that way. And now, you know, and the capital flows are very controlled, right? The capital account's very controlled, very tough to take money in and out of China. So I think uh, everything about China is orchestrated. And I think this is what, you know, it, what they're going through is an industrial industrialization of their economy. If they were to do what the Trump administration wants to do, it'd be very disruptive for them. So it's not so much that they're trying, that they're fighting Trump. It's that they've got to manage the how their own economy is developing in the middle of this tension with the Trump administration. So honestly, I think yeah. this is totally unconstructive. Jim, What's attempting to control something doesn't mean you have control. It doesn't necessarily look like they have control at the I, moment. I think they have more control than anybody in the world uh, on their on their financial instruments, on their currencies. So it's hard to know. I mean, I know there are pressures, but the thing is, uh, it's very difficult for people to, you know, normally you would worry that this is a sign of capital outflows, people panicking, they're moving yeah. capital out. You can't move capital out. I mean, there are limits on what you can do, and you can be threatened to go to jail or do whatever you want to do. Quite clearly, there's a difference between the pain that the Chinese are experiencing currently and the pain they experienced in the summer of 15 and early 2016. You know, I'm not sure that was pain. They were they were trying, they were trying to get into the, S, the basket of uh, the SDR basket, right? So they were, the IMF had issues with, their currency was not looking like a market currency, so they were trying to go through a process of liberalizing. And the thing is, they've it's it's they've got tremendous control over. I this. think a lot of people would describe the equity market bursting as pain, Jim. Well, you, not many people own. This is not like America. I know a I very small I percentage I of people understand the composition of the ownership, but quite clearly there was some serious concern amid uh, the collapse that we saw in the equity market. Fifteen going through sixteen in yeah, the Chinese you know, economy. Honestly, uh, I remember these worries we had about hard landing in China back in yeah. 2016, right? And our market went down 20%. And then you, but if you stood back and you said, now, wait a minute, China can turn lots of dials here. And then with six months later, we, we no longer worry about that. And then we yeah. find out that car sales have doubled. So I, I really think it's very difficult assessing China. It's very managed. All right. So uh, difficult to assess China. Some people are saying there's signs that it is getting affected, but unclear. Let's turn to the U.S. We are expecting that jobs number at 8.30 Eastern yeah. time today. Are we going to see some bleed through from this tit for tat that's escalating uh, between the U.S. and, frankly, the rest of the world 
in the jobs number? I, I doubt it in the aggregate numbers. What people are saying is when you look at uh, employment at very large companies, you're seeing a little bit of a slowdown. That's where you might see it, but I think it's so subtle, you won't you won't see it. I think we're going to see something at 200,000. Jobless claims, which are the most reliable indicator we have on the U.S., are telling us that the labor market strengthened further in the last six months, and it seems like uh, we're still running very strong. And I think the mystery in the U.S. is where are all these people coming from? If we're at low, if we're at low levels of unemployment, where are all these people coming from? Well, it's a reminder that there was a lot of hidden unemployment during the recession, and I'll bet you anything we're going to find out that there's some flows of new immigration coming in. Yeah. How much do you think that the uh, tariffs or sort of the, the trade tensions uh, are going to lead to much higher inflation? I think pretty marginal because, first of all, what is the impact of tariffs? It's not just tariffs themselves that matters. It What matters is what's the cost of merchandise. So if you ask Walmart, what is the cost of your merchandise that you're purchasing from China? Well, the currency is down 8 or 9%. Um, my guess is they would tell you not much. When you add the tariffs to the lower cost of merchandise, the story is much more complicated than just tariffs. It also depends on what the currency is doing. Um, is this disruptive to the economy? I think it'll be really marginal impact on inflation. You'll, you'll see it more in the PPI level and the cost of steel and aluminum, where, where it already has gone into place. But I think in terms of uh, things that we're buying from China, I bet we don't see much of it. And you'll see it in the import price trends. Jim Glassman, great to have you with us this morning. J.P. Morgan Chase, commercial banking head economist. So I want to bring in Mike Darda, MKM Holdings Chief Economist and Chief Market Strategist, uh, to get some more reaction on what Jonathan Farrow called a snooze fest before running out the door uh, and leaving it in my hands. Mike, what's your take on this report? Thanks for having me on. I think it's pretty, you know, pretty much in line with consensus. If we look at the 59,000 upward revision to the previous two months, then you know the actual headline figure came, you know, right in line with consensus expectations. Importantly, I would remind viewers: much better to look at moving averages because these monthly figures do bounce around, and we do see pretty significant revisions to previous months. So, if you look at a three-month moving average, we're still running over 200,000. You know, yeah. 224, I think, to be exact. So that's well above the pace the Fed thinks that we can sustain over a long period of time. As a result, you know, you mentioned the bond market not really moving. So, you know, these data would be consistent with the Fed still on track, probably to do two more rate rises this year. All right. So two more rate rises this year. I, you know, I got to say, are we moving past the paradigm where every payrolls report is, you know, parsed in detail and people are trying to understand things and people are saying, you know what, we know that things are good. We know that in general, the job market is strong. Meh, on the margins, you're going to get some uh, variations just month to month. Uh, but on the whole, unless there's something really dramatic, we don't really care. I, I think so. You know, it's interesting. The Fed spent a few years uh, telling us that they weren't on a preset course, but now it looks pretty much like a preset course unless something radical happens to the macro data. So I don't think, you know, one month of, you know, above or below really throws the Fed much off track based on, you know, what their current intentions are. 
And this number was, you know, pretty much right in line. So I think you'd need a streak of surprises on on payrolls, either much lower than expected, or, you know, if they're much hotter, especially at this stage of the recovery, then that would certainly reinforce the idea of a more hawkish Fed relative to you know, what's currently priced in. So, Mike, given given that backdrop, given the fact that the U.S. economy, by all accounts, is pretty strong right now. The focus moves more to trade, and we're getting uh, sort of the retaliation from China to President Trump's additional tariffs on Chinese goods. China saying that it's going to levy tariffs between 5 and 25 percent on $60 billion of additional U.S. goods coming into the country uh, you know, in retaliation. How much does that sort of dominate the whole picture at this point as this backdrop, this sort of unknown about wage growth, et cetera, et cetera, is pretty much a known right now? I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, it's an important issue. So far, at least as it relates to the macro data and, frankly, the financial markets, it doesn't seem to be having much of an impact at all. But, you know, if you continue to see this ratcheting effect where tariffs are going up and then you see retaliation, you know, we could start to see more harmful effects eventually impacting the macro data in financial markets. We're not there, but you know, the way we've been advising our clients to think about more restrictive trade policies is essentially like a adverse supply-side shock in Economics 101. So if you're applying tariffs or taxes, price of a good goes up, output falls. You know, it's a headwind to efficiency. You know, your previous guest was talking about wages and productivity and the key to faster wage growth you know, being through faster productivity. Well, a trade war certainly isn't going to help on efficiency and productivity. And so, you know, if we look at fiscal policy, we see some positives, but also some negatives. And frankly, trade, I think, would have to go in the negative column. Mike, is a trade war inflationary or deflationary? Well, it is inflationary. So an adverse supply side shock, if you're shifting the supply curve to the left, prices go up, output falls. Um, So different than a demand shock where they tend to go in the same direction. For the Fed, they do try to look beyond supply side shocks. So, you know, supply shocks will tend to impact inflation in a temporary way. And it's, you know, it's unclear how the Fed would, you know, would really respond if this gets severe. But you know, the, what they're telling us is that they're going to try to look beyond it. So if you think about the Fed's dual mandate, what would a dual mandate tell the Fed to do in the event of an adverse supply shock? Well, on the one hand, you get higher inflation, so that would translate into more hawkish policy. But on the other, you get weaker real growth yeah. and probably some disruptions in the labor market, which would cut the other way, easing policy. So on net, you know, an adverse supply shock isn't good for the U.S. economy, probably doesn't carry significant implications for monetary policy one way or the other. Mike Darda, thank you so much for being with us. Michael Darda is MKM's chief economist and market strategist. Thank you so much for spending time with us on this Payrolls Friday. It's great to see you in front of the White House again. I've got about $10 trillion of assets under management with me around the table, and they're keen to get your insights on the jobs report. A really solid jobs report over the last few months. And around the panel, Larry, we've been talking about whether there's more slack in this labor market. Do you think there is, Larry? Well, look, I, you know, depending on the measurements and so forth, I think there's a lot of people who are still outside of you know, what, what I call the prime age workforce which is what, uh, 25 to 54 or some such. 
Uh, Council of Economic Advisors, my great pal Kevin Hassett, has looked at this. Um, the estimates are wide-ranging, but the high end is 20 million. 20, I'm sorry, 22 million people are outside of the prime age workforce. Uh, now, you might dispute that number. On the low side, I think their estimate was about 10 to 12 million. So while labor markets have certainly firmed up and the unemployment rate is down, I think it ticked down to 3.9 today, and you had a good jobs report today, including revisions, it was 215,000. There are still a lot of Americans out there who could come back into the labor force. So I like that. I think our potential to grow is very strong. And with the right incentives, I think we'll get them back working. Yeah, and talking to you and speaking to Kevin Hassett previously, Larry, it just seems that the administration is waiting for this supply-side response. Has that been your rather nuanced message over to the Federal Reserve as well? Well, let me stay with the supply-side response and simply indicate it looks to me like we are in an investment boom, a capital goods boom, a CapEx boom. Those numbers are roaring in recent quarters. And I noticed the monthlies on, you know, durables and factory orders are very, very strong. You know, that was the key intention, the primary thrust, thrust of our tax cut plan for businesses. Uh, you know, 21% corporate rate, full expensing, easy repatriation. I think it's working. Now, it's only been in, what, six, seven months. But the early returns on that, just the last couple quarters, are very, very, very strong. That will elevate the whole growth rate and health of the economy. So I like that part a lot. And some analysts, probably not everybody, but some analysts are already making some calculations that the productivity rate, output per hour, output per person, is now starting to creep up again. I think it's probably too soon to, um, to say anything conclusively, but I've seen these, uh, I've seen these views and uh, it looks like we may be moving back to say one and a half to two percent productivity. We were virtually zero for quite some time. This is all good. Yeah. This is all good. Larry, I know over the last couple of weeks we've had a real discussion around this table about whether trend growth in the United States has picked up. And it looks like, relatively speaking, the U.S. is in a position of strength looking into China. Larry, you've sat around the table with the Chinese many, many times. What is your opinion, your insight into what is happening with the Chinese economy currently? Well, look, I'm not an expert. I do try to follow it. And it looks to me, I don't know, you all may disagree. It looks to me like the China economy is... is, is declining in growth. It's weakening uh, almost across the board. And it looks like the uh, People's Bank of China is trying to pump it up by, you know, adding high-powered money and, and, and uh, new credit and so forth. The currency fall, the currency fall, I think, is partly they've stopped defending the yuan. They think it's going to help uh, offset the U.S. Uh, uh, effort to get rid of their unfair trading. Some of the currency fall, though, I think is just money leaving China because it's a lousy investment. And if that continues, that will really damage the Chinese economy. If money leaves China and the currency could be a leading indicator, they're going to be in a heap of trouble. And so I'm going to make the case that they are in a weak economic position. That's not a good place for them to be vis-a-vis -vis the trade negotiations first point. Second point, they better not underestimate President Trump's, President Trump's determination to follow through on our asks, okay, IP theft, no go. Uh, forced transfer of technology, no go. Uh, non-reciprocal trading on tariffs and non-tariff barriers, 
You know, the president, he's a trade reformer. We said many times, no tariffs, no tariff barriers, no subsidies. We want to see trade reforms. China is not delivering. Okay, their economy is weak. Their currency is weak. People leaving the country. Um, don't underestimate President Trump's determination to follow through. I'm just telling you. I can't speak for the Communist Party in China. I can speak for our president. Do I not underestimate his determination to change trading practices on a fair, reciprocal plane. One thing you can definitely speak to, Larry, is the strategy of the president. It just seems to me that the strategy of the administration at the moment is to exert maximum pain on the Chinese economy. Is that the direction of travel for you guys, Larry? Uh, I'm sorry, what, what was the end question? It's the direction of travel for you guys to exert maximum plain, pain on the Chinese economy to get them to come to the table and change their trade regime. Well, look, I, I would maybe rephrase it a bit. Um, I think what we're saying is that we are serious. And in trade, as you well know and your, uh, your guests know, negotiations often include the use of tariffs. And president has said time and time again that targeted tariffs are going to be part of the game plan with China unless and until they begin to meet our request, which so far they have not. In fact, in recent month or so, we've had hardly any conversations with them at all. There is some hint now that they may wish to talk, although I can't say that with certainty. Look, I, I think the biggest news on the trade front away from the intransigent Chinese is our progress with the European Union that occurred last week. Uh, the president had great meetings with President Juncker. Uh, I was involved in that. Uh, we're breaking ground. We will have a number of announcements coming up, I hope, in the next 30 or so days with respect to transactions and market opening and increased investments with the European Union. The EU, as you know, turned down a China effort to make a deal. The EOS, EO said no. And so you've got now a better story with the U.S. and the EU. We're probably going to have some positive news on Mexico. And I think uh, the alliance, what I sometimes call the trade coalition of the willing to change China's unfair and illegal practices, EU, Mexico, China, I'm sorry, uh, Japan, Australia, uh, perhaps Canada will eventually join us as we negotiate NAFTA. I, I like the position we are in, and I think the president has played his cards very wisely. Larry, just as a final question, the president has often gone off on his own and talked very high level with an individual leader. What is the prospect, do you think, that we could see President Trump sit down with President Xi again and address these issues together? Well, you know, he, uh, President Trump likes bilaterals. And he likes to go head to head. You're quite right. That's a good insight. So if the opportunity presents itself, um, I don't want to speak for the president. I don't want to get ahead of him on this tricky question you asked. But all I know is if the past is any prologue to the future, President Trump enjoys bilateral discussions. Look, uh, we just had one with the EU. President Juncker and President Trump got together and probably, <laughs> probably did what nobody thought possible, which is not only to have a respectful, peaceable meeting, but to actually begin the process of making a grand deal to uh, open up, uh, uh, tear down barriers and open up markets. So there's your head-to-head -head model. Uh, you may well see it with China. We'll have to see. I don't know.
Larry Kudlow, it's great to see you healthy and fit in front of the White House again. It's been a Thank while. you so much to Jonathan Farrow. Uh, that was a tremendous interview with Larry Kudlow of the U.S. Council of Economics advising President Trump. Now here with a preview of uh, Sunday's Face the Nation is CBS's Margaret Brennan. Of course, you can listen to Face the Nation Sunday, 2 p.m. in New York, Washington, D.C., and now Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport. Face the Nation this Sunday, 2 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. Margaret, with all of the back and forth this week, we've got the president who is, seems to be in full campaign mode. Yeah, three rallies this week. We had the one in Pennsylvania last night. We got another one coming up Saturday night in Ohio, which undoubtedly will provide fodder for us Sunday morning. Um, we know the president last night, uh, even though he had all of his top national security officials from the podium at the White House issuing stark warnings to Russia to knock it off and to stop interfering in the upcoming November uh, elections, uh, which they continue to do. Democracy is in the crosshairs, according to the Homeland Security uh, Secretary. Uh, the president didn't echo that language at his rally and said, once again, using uh, terms like witch hunt to describe the ongoing uh, investigations into uh, election meddling in 2016. So, Margaret, who's your guest this week? We'll talk about some of that with a familiar face, Adam Schiff, Democratic congressman from California, who's been involved in some of those investigations. We'll also, because we're headed towards September sooner than you might think, and back to school season, be taking a look at uh, what's going on with the state of education in America. We'll bring in uh, Arnie Duncan, the former education secretary from the Obama administration, who's got a new book out, and talk to him about uh, some of what the Trump administration is trying to do now and some of the track record of the Obama administration and what they attempted to do to help educate our kids. Now, just a little bit on uh, on Representative uh, Adam Schiff of California. Is that going to also focus on the ongoing investigation into Russian meddling in the U.S. presidential election? Because the president, of course, this week tweeting out that he wants Attorney General Jeff Sessions to push to conclude that investigation. The president did say that, which, of course, the attorney general cannot do because he's recused himself from the investigation, which further muddies the waters here. Uh, some talking about this is really just a, a political tweet to um, draw support of some of the president's uh, you know, most devoted supporters who are seeing this through a political lens, which is what the president claims it is, all the witch hunt. Um, but with Adam Schiff, uh, we will talk more about what Congress is doing or not doing to actually secure facilities. Less of what happened in 2016, more of what is happening right now. You have the head of Cyber Command standing up at the White House podium saying we are going to take active measures against hackers who right now are trying to interfere and divide America. You know, Margaret, I wonder, just as a as a journalist, when you're questioning uh, people on either side, uh, Adam Schiff obviously has very strong views. Is it ever difficult yeah. to try to find, I don't know, some kind of, I don't want to say middle ground, but a place that feels more constructive than how heated the rhetoric has gotten on all sides? I, I think you're right. I think this is something that is, very frustrating for those of us who want to focus on policy, on substance, on what is being done now to America versus um, getting people to 
to who are divided to be less divided, to focus on the facts rather than the opinions here. And that is something that if, if you b- believe exactly what the intelligence community is telling you, that the aim is to divide America when we only hear things through partisan lenses or see them that way, um, it, it only helps that attempt to divide. And, and I think that's really frustrating. I think it is also very frustrating for me um, in trying to lead conversations when you do have everything put through the, the political uh, uh, filter once again, and you rightly uh, indicate there uh the congressman from California has been involved with the House Intelligence Committee investigation, but he's also out there fundraising for the Democratic Party at the very same time. Can you separate those things? Um, and uh, what he would say, what others would say, is when it comes to American security, they can. Will the public listen to the facts rather than uh, the filter, I think, is the challenge for us as journalists to keep it focused on that. Um, and, and that's why I think it was important for the White House to put out uh, some of the national security professionals to make these arguments yesterday and say they're not out there for political reasons. They're out there telling you what they're finding right now. Well, Margaret, uh, I guess there's no love lost between uh, Adam Schiff and uh, fellow California Congressman Devin Nunes. <laughs> No, that's always uh, part of the the infighting there. They are two partisans, and they uh, very much uh, are in disagreement with each other. That House committee investigation concluded, and I will point out that that Trey Gowdy, who uh, has led his own investigations and House oversight, himself called these things really more of a circus than a fact-finding mission when Congress leads an investigation. Um, That aside, the reason that it will ultimately come down in many ways to what Congress uh, believes or what they are able to turn up is because if we do get into a situation post-November, post these congressional races, where it comes down to not a uh, procedure in court, but rather a political uh, test here of impeachment, what is it, how is it that people will be, uh, what is the facts that they are looking at and how will they be voting, which is why this does come down to politics in terms of how it could damage the president in the long run. If, if the special counsel doesn't have a case to bring to court, uh, does he, what will he bring to Congress? We'll be listening. Thanks very much, Margaret Brennan, host of Face the Nation. Remember to listen to Face the Nation Sunday, 2 p.m. in New York, Washington, D.C., and now Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport. That's Face the Nation this Sunday at 2 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. Governor Carney throwing himself back into the thick end of the Brexit debate, saying the chance of the UK dropping out of the European Union without a deal is uncomfortably high. A little bit of tension there. Also some tension in the news conference following a decision to hike interest rates. Mr Carney was asked about what our guest, Danny Blanchflower, thought about the labour market. Take a listen to this exchange. Given that Professor Blanchflower's predictions for labour market and particularly earnings growth have been... uh, recently a lot more accurate than the banks. Why is he wrong and you're right? Uh, <laughs> where do I begin? Um, the, uh, um, great respect for Professor Blanchflower, but um, uh, his time in the MPC has passed, and um, this is a judgment of this MPC, first point. Second is that I think one 
bigger point of context in terms of wages, um, which is not precisely going to your question. I'll get to your question, but uh, going precisely is that uh, a you know, given how low productivity is, um, wage growth that is in the upper twos, low threes, is actually wage growth that's consistent today um, with a 2% inflation target. Governor Carney there uh, speaking in the news conference following that interest rate hike. Danny Blanchflair joining us now, Dartmouth professor and former BOE Monetary Policy Committee member. Danny, good morning to you and thank you for coming back. Your opportunity sure, to respond like the to the governor. <laughs> Please, Danny, respond. Well, yeah, I like the great respect bit. I mean, I think... I'm I sure think you do. Was, <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the answer was a, <laughs> a bit disingenuous in the, the suggestion, and they continue to make the suggestion, that wage growth is in the threes and the three and a half. Well, that's what they have been forecasting for the last 18 forecasts in a row. And they got all excited in December when they got a read of 3%. And they said, yippee, here we are. We're completely right. And then wage growth deteriorated and fell and slowed. So the forecasts, the forecasts they made have been terrible. Everything in this, basically, in this decision to raise was essentially based on their forecast for wages, which I think I've shown has been completely terrible, and there was nothing in the data. So I really didn't buy it. And I thought the, the data this morning, the slowing of the services PMI, sort of added, added to the sort of error of groupthink they made yesterday. And there's been a lot of people like me saying, you know, this was a major mistake. The FT editorial this morning yeah. is a, says this is a major mistake. And I think, it, I think it, it has been. I think the fundamental thing is about wages, as it will be in the jobs report this morning. And I've worked on, I wrote my PhD thesis on it over you know, nearly 40 years ago. So I know about this stuff. And I think, I think it was just, they've just gone on and on and on saying, you know, it's all going to explode. And the answer that listeners should have is, well, why today? If in the last 17 forecasts it didn't happen, you're saying today it's going to, why should we ever believe you? Right. Well, Danny, I guess that then the question is, how much harm did the Bank of England do with this rate hike? I mean, couldn't you say it's just innocuous and it gives them a little more ammunition to uh, take care of another well, downturn? Well, an already slowing housing and commercial property markets are going to be impacted. And the way I sort of think of it is, you've got three choices. You can punch yourself hard in the face, you can punch yourself gently in the face, or not punch yourself in the face. So I would choose option three. Um, and you said to me, is, not, is punching yourself in the face a little bit when you don't have to? Is that a good idea? The answer is no, it's not a good idea. So yes, they've made a small mistake, better than making a big mistake. But I personally would have preferred them to not make a mistake yeah. at all. And I was on yesterday with Adam Posen. He was on the NPC too. And our views were the data was much more um, balanced than you would have thought. And there were clear arguments actually for a cut. So if there are arguments, a strong arguments for a cut and you say, well, it doesn't really hurt. They've made an error. Well, OK, it's better than making a really big error. But it looks so to Danny, me like an error. Yeah. For our listeners that weren't with us yesterday, I, I just want to give the other end of the argument so you have a chance to respond to it. What do you make of mm -hmm. the, the comment from Governor Carney where he basically says that you used to be on the MPC. This is today's MPC. And I don't think it was an insult. I think it was a suggestion that times were different back then. There was an expectation of a productivity rebound that we probably won't get now. That's the expectation from this MPC in 2018. What do you make of that kind of theory, Danny? 
Well, I, I certainly have written about the fact that the world has changed, and I think it's fundamentally altered. The labor market characteristics have altered. But I think my analysis of the labor market has actually got better and theirs has got worse. So I think that obviously there's that. The world has changed. Clearly, we're at low rates uh, for, a, for a set of reasons. Um, I mean, just because, I mean, I remember being on there and being a lone voice then. So I guess I'm a lone voice now. Um, but we will see. But it looks it looked to me like this is an, an error. The market didn't receive it that well. Um, but to, I mean, literally, think today. That today we suddenly got a really bad services PMI came in immediately afterwards. So you have very weak growth, no data to sustain it, and the first piece of data you get is bad. So yeah, maybe he can say that. But you know, I think that uh, the, their analysis and their forecasts have been disastrous. Jenny Blanchflower, thank you so much for being with us. I'm going to go home sure. tonight. I'm going to tell my son, you know, I have some advice uh, for you. What, don't from, punch yourself in the face. Don't just, if you're going to punch yourself in your face, don't do it. You don't want to do it hard. <laughs> you don't want to do it soft. You could just avoid it. Um, this from Dartmouth professor, Danny Blanchflower. It's great to catch up with Danny to get He's Danny's thoughts. It was wonderful. such an interesting exchange in the news conference at the Bank of England. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.